The single most important intervention that any physician can make with a patient is to help them quit smoking. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is board-certified pulmonologist, Dr. Stephen Brown. Dr. Stephen Brown is on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin and is at the Lung Center of Milwaukee. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Brown, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, certainly the most important intervention we can make with our patients is to help them quit smoking. Um, what what can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, smoking is a tremendously addictive uh, habit, and it's extremely hard to get patients to quit smoking. The most important thing you can do if you are having any contact with patients when they are young, before they are smokers, when they are in this really, really early stage, is to really encourage them not to smoke. If you're a pediatrician, if you're a family practice physician, if you're uh, an internist taking care of young people, if you're working in a college setting in student health, believe it or not, patients respect you. And they treat you as a physician in many ways that they treat a parent, in many ways as they treat clergy, and just a little bit of uh, encouragement and asking patients whether they're smoking or not, expressing encouragement to them if they have not become a smoker, it goes a very, very long way. We have tremendous power in this way to help our patients to stop smoking in the first place. Once a patient has started smoking, and it doesn't take long, it takes weeks of regular tobacco use, those patients will become physically dependent upon cigarettes. It doesn't take very long to become psychologically dependent upon cigarettes and to develop behavior in which this urge to smoke becomes reinforced. So what do you do once they are addicted? Well, if they're addicted, it's important to recognize that smoking is a three-pronged addiction. It is a physiologic addiction to nicotine. Uh, When you stop nicotine, it impairs concentration. When you stop smoking, People have difficulty with their memory, they perform poorly, and they will actually develop physical withdrawal symptoms, similar to physical withdrawal from other addictive substances. Heart rate goes up, people start to gain weight. There are serious problems associated with it, so the physical needs to be addressed. In terms of addressing the physical, we typically will address that with either nicotine replacement products, which have been around for about 20 years now. Those include nicotine gum, the nicotine patch, nicotine nasal spray or or the nicotine inhaler. Or we can use other medications such as uh, Welbutrin or Bupropion or uh, Varenicline. Varenicline is the newest agent that's out there that goes by the brand name Chantix. What uh, Chantix does or Varenicline does is it's a combination uh, nicotine receptor agonist antagonist. So as I explained to my patients, If you take Chantix, which is a pill that you take twice a day, it fools the part of the brain that has nicotine receptors into thinking you've had a cigarette. It acts on the reward center of the brain to cause some dopamine surges uh, to make you feel satisfied. But because it partially blocks those receptors, if you smoke a cigarette, you don't get sick like if you're taking antabuse. But if you smoke a cigarette, it just doesn't, no longer reinforcing. It's kind of like taking someone who really loves chocolate and giving them something so that when they eat chocolate, it tastes like chalk. It just doesn't do anything for them. And therefore, if it's no longer rewarding, that helps. One of the worst things you can do, in my opinion, if you want to help someone's smoking cessation is to, and it's very hard when you only have about 10 minutes for a patient if you're really pressed, is to write a script and say, here, go fill this and, and this will help you. Because a good smoking cessation program really needs to include some psychological counseling for patients and behavioral therapy. 
Now, for physicians that may not be psychiatrists or pulmonologists, how realistically can we incorporate that into our treatment? It depends upon your community and depends upon what resources are available. Uh, It can be very difficult to get the resources that you need. But if you can identify people in your medical community who are interested in stress reduction, who are interested in helping patients to deal with behavioral problems that may be associated, it can be extremely helpful. One of the, um, and it doesn't have to be a psychiatrist, people out there who are uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric social workers, hypnotists. One of the key things, though, is learning how to relax properly. If you're 16 years old and you start smoking, smoking may be the only way that you've learned to deal with stress in your life. And if you take that away from a patient and don't replace it with other tools to deal with stressful activities that occur, not only are you going to have difficulty with success, but it actually may even be a little bit cruel to take away someone's only coping mechanism. One of the other factors I think that's really important uh, is to understand that nicotine also acts as an antidepressant in the brain and that women, especially that are smokers, often have comorbid depression. When they stop smoking, their depression gets worse. Exactly. And this is why I think counseling is important and addressing these other issues such as stress reduction and dressing depression is important. And you know, I think women have you know, less avenues to be able to deal with social stresses. Uh, you know, they, they can't, you know, they can, but they're just, they have less opportunities, you know, to go out and, and play golf on a Sunday or, or to hang out at a bar, you know, with your buddies and, or to go hunting or, you know, they're, they're home, they're raising their families, they're working. And the stresses for women are, are much higher than, and the availability for stress reductions much more reduced for women. So I think that that's an extremely important uh, challenge for us. So how do you motivate your smoking patients who really don't want to quit smoking? There are a number of ways you can do it. Um, You can try scare tactics. That often doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I will appeal to them as being a parent, and I express to them, especially if there's some underlying disease, you know, if they've got a young child, they say, well, I appeal to their motivation to want to see their child grow up and to be there for that child when that child is in high school or when that child is married or to be there for their grandchildren. So I appeal to that in, in some way. Sometimes I point out the absurdity of what they're doing, and that's been very helpful. So a patient will come to me, for example, who's smoking a pack a day, and uh, I'll express concern about their smoking, and I'll get out my prescription pad, and I'll tell the patient, you know, I'm very concerned about your smoking, and I want to, uh, I want to write a medicine for you. And it's not approved by your insurance company, but I think this is something that's going to help you. Now, you have to take this medicine 20 times a day. <laughs> it's not covered by insurance. It's going to cost you probably in the neighborhood of about $2,000 a year cash out of pocket. And some of the studies that have been done on this have demonstrated that some, not everyone, but just some of the people who take it uh, get cancer that's incurable. Uh, and then I start writing the patient's name on the prescription. I said, okay, if I write for some, and the hand goes up immediately. And they said, Doc, are you crazy? <laughs> I can't take something 20 times a day. I don't have $2,000 to just blow like that. You know, and cancer, you know, so then I look at the patient. I said, well, that's what you're doing. So you're self-medicating yourself with low doses of nicotine 20 times a day when you're smoking a pack a day. That's a great strategy. I think that's helped. That's one of the ways I, I, I've done it. And just kind of to point out, you know, from a slightly, just take a step back from your life and look at what they're doing. I could never prescribe a medicine 20 times a day. What type of compliance would I get? Zero. 
So when you point it out to them, sometimes that helps. Do you use these medicines like nicotine replacement or bupropion or, or Chantix for patients that, that may not be addicted to the nicotine? I think it, it, everyone's addicted to nicotine. If you're smoking enough, you're probably addicted to nicotine, and you're fooling yourself if you're, that you're not going to get some sort of withdrawal. I guess it depends. If someone is down to smoking perhaps a quarter pack or less per day, then I'm not as worried. And those patients are more inclined to help them stop cold turkey. But if you're smoking anywhere between you know, seven cigarettes and above uh, daily, and I've got patients who are smoking as many as 40 cigarettes a day, and you wonder when they have time to do anything else, nicotine replacement, I think, is, is very helpful. The studies demonstrate that when used as an adjunct to other smoking cessation therapies, nicotine replacement does help. One of the questions that I often ask to try to figure that out is, when do you smoke your first cigarette of the day? Because, of course, theoretically at night and when they're sleeping, they haven't been smoking. So it gives you some sense of how addicted they are. If the first thing they do before their feet hit the ground in the morning is smoke, then they're pretty addicted. If they can go all day and not smoke till night, then maybe they're not quite as addicted. It's a very good point. I agree. Now, we've all seen patients who then become addicted to the nicotine replacement. What about those people? Well, you're trading off one addiction for another in those circumstances. And I just got my hair cut on a couple days ago, and the person who was cutting my hair, I congratulated her on that she's been off cigarettes for a few years, and she kind of waved her nicotine gum at me and says, yeah, but I'm still on the gum. You know, she's at least not, you know, she's not setting fire to a plant and, and inhaling the, the contents of the combustion there. So it's a trade-off there. It'd be nice to be able to get them to get off the nicotine replacement products as well because people do get addicted to that as well. That's where I think psychological counseling can help and where behavioral management helps. Nicotine is such an addictive substance that on an unconscious level, your brain is paying so much attention to everything that's going on around you. So if you're smoking a cigarette or even taking chewing on nicotine gum, your brain is paying attention. Well, what am I looking at? What am I hearing? What am I smelling? What am I doing at this time? What time of day is it? And when those similar environmental events occur in the absence of nicotine, it tells your brain, oh, it's smoking time. So people will get used to the the smell of a smoky car can be a trigger, the smell of their smoky clothing, the, the taste of coffee, the taste of beer, sex, ring of a telephone, all those environmental cues. Looking out your, your kitchen window at the backyard can be a, a cue to cigarette smoking if that's what you're used to doing. Mixing up those uh, triggers and recognizing the triggers for being a trigger are helpful in those circumstances. And that's helpful, I think, in getting off of the addiction possibly to the transdermal nicotine or, or the nicotine gum. So how do you decide whether to use a nicotine replacement or bupropion or varenicline, the latest? In my uh, experience, the latest medication which has come out, which is the varenicline, probably is the best. Uh, and the studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which were published in the past year or so, also support that compared to nicotine replacement therapy or compared to bupropion, you know, Wellbutrin or um, uh, Zyban, which is the other brand name, seems to be the best medication. And even at the best, we're looking at perhaps a 40% quit rate you know, for a very, very difficult addiction. But that's, I'll take 40%. That's, that's something at least. And that, that's a pretty good track record after a year. Some people, it'll come down to what their insurance will pay for and what they can afford. Most of these medications are priced to cost about what a pack of cigarettes would cost on a daily basis. So it's usually not a major financial stress for the patient. And I explained to some patients who do express concern about the cost of the medicine, 
I, I just take out the pad and I say, well, let's see what the cost of cigarettes will cost you for the next 365 days. And I say, well, that's going to cost you about $2,000 or so. Now, if you take varenicline for the next three months instead of taking it for 12 months, you may be spending a little bit more up front, but the curves are going to cost. And you know, after three, four months, you're going to be saving money and your year-end savings is going to be greater. And typically, a course of varenicline is about 12 weeks. A course of nicotine replacement therapy, typically... If it's combined with other therapies and you can step it down, maybe also 12 to 18 weeks or so, and you can demonstrate cost savings there. Yeah, we've had terrific luck with with it as well, the Varenicline. And, you know, 40% uh, if you treat alcoholics or other sort of addictive diseases, 40% is darn good. Oh, yes, definitely. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Brown. We have been discussing smoking cessation. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.